Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 17. It's titled, Why China Matters to Your Pocketbook. The suggestion for this topic came from Trevor, who lives up in British Columbia. And he sent an email a few weeks ago and wanted me to talk about BRICS and how BRICS relate to the economy and currency. Now, before we think we're going to talk about construction BRICS, BRICS, the term BRIC, B-R-I-C, is an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, and China, which are the four largest developing countries or emerging markets. And the term BRICS was coined by Jim O'Neill of Goldman Sachs, who produced a report in 2001 that talked about these four countries and how their economies were growing very, very rapidly and would have a huge impact on the global economy over the next decade. So that's been a while since that report came out, and that's exactly what has happened. Now, instead of talking about all four countries, I want to focus specifically on China and how China is impacting us both in terms of our economy, but also, or the global economy, but also in terms of just spending, just the sheer magnitude of products they produce and the sheer magnitude of resources they consume and how that impacts things today and how potentially will have a significant impact going forward. I also want to talk about, I invest in China, why I'm doing that, but also some of the challenges. Because every, every day there's another story in China. And there's political issues, there's economic issues, there's, there's concern that there's aspects of China, such as the real estate markets in the bubble. And, and the reality is you really need to have a base understanding of what is going on in China in order to be able to, to invest today and understand the global economy. So that's our focus today. In order to, to start, I want to show you just how fast China has grown over the last 30 years. In 1980, there were a billion citizens in China. Their gross domestic product, or GDP, was $303 billion, about a tenth the size of the economy in the U.S. Now, just as a, a refresher, if you recall from episode six, when we talked about what, what is the economy and how is it measured, GDP, a gross domestic product, is a measure of a nation's output, what it produces in terms of goods and services. And, and that's kind of hard to measure because it's, it's what's being produced. And st- the various countries measure that GDP in a number of different ways. One, day, one way they measure it is by looking at what is spent in terms of what government is spending, what households are spending, what businesses are investing in terms of being able to 
in terms of their capacity to be able to produce. And so you can calculate GDP, you can estimate that output based on spending, but you can also estimate output based on income, what are household income, what is business income, etc. So in 1980, China was $303 billion in GDP, about a tenth the size of the U.S. economy. And that's expressed in today's dollars. On a per-person basis, the Chinese economy was even smaller than the U.S. It was about $307 per person compared to $12,575 per person in the U.S. So really, really small economy. Today, though, China's GDP is $10 trillion compared to $17.5 trillion for the U.S. So it's about 60% the size of the U.S. economy. It's gone from less than 10% to 60% in 30 years. And that $307 per person GDP in China is now $7,332 per person in today's dollars. Now, it's still less than the U.S. The U.S. per person GDP is $55,000. And so China is still relatively poor. The average GDP per person in the U.S., I'm sorry, in the world, is about $10,000. That's the average. The U.S. is way high at $55,000. There's some countries in Europe that are even higher than the U.S. U.S. is ranked eighth. China is ranked 83rd, I believe. And so even though China has grown so rapidly, they're still a relatively poor nation when you think in terms of the value of their output, it's only about $7,000 per person versus 55000 in the U.S. Yet here is what is amazing. You know, what does it take for an economy to grow that rapidly? It takes a lot of cement, coal, steel, pigs, eggs, and many other resources. In 2010, China consumed 53% of the world's cement, 47% of its coal, 45% of its steel, and 47% of its pigs. And this is data that Jeremy Grantham at GMO put together in a research report, and he got data from a number of different sources, such as Barclays Capital, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, IMF, and the United Nations. And because he, and he, he just wanted to figure out, right, China's grown so quickly, how much are they consuming in terms of the world's resources? And it's significant for an economy that's ranked 83rd in the world in terms of per capita GDP to be consuming half the world's cement and almost half of its coal. Surprisingly, though, China has about the same number of vehicles, cars and trucks on the roads as the U.S., about 240 million vehicles. Yet China only consumes 10 percent of the world's oil. And that's according to the Chinese Ministry of Public Safety and the U.S. Bureau of Transportation and also GMO. So the Chinese have a lot of vehicles, but they don't drive nearly as much as those that live in the United States. Now, why do, why do we care the percent of the world's resources that China is consuming? And this is an example that's something that impacts our pocketbook. Think about it. China, 83rd in the world in terms of economy, you also have other developing countries such as India and Brazil. They, Brazil, they want their citizens to live the same standard of living as, as the Western world, as the U.S., as Canada, 
as Europe, which, as you recall, they're only they're about seven thousand dollars per person in terms of GDP. The U.S. is fifty-five thousand. They have a long way to go, yet they're already consuming massive amount of resources. Now, some of those resources are are renewable, such as pigs, but many of them are not. There's a limited supply. And one of the ways that the continuing development of these BRICs or of, of emerging markets in general is if, as there are as a limited resources, as appetite for these things increase, as countries get more rich, they, they tend to eat more pigs and more beef. China only consumes about 10% of the world beef. And that all takes additional resources. There's a quote I wanted to share. It's from E.F. Schumacher, and he wrote the book Small is Beautiful. And I shared a quote by him a couple episodes ago. He writes, From an economic viewpoint, the central concept of wisdom is permanence. Nothing makes economic sense unless its continuance for a long time can be projected without running into absurdities. There can be growth towards a limited objective, but there cannot be unlimited, generalized growth. Our global economic system is based on unlimited growth, not permanence. In some of the early episodes, such as episode five, the true cost of a thing, I talked about how we're a throwaway society. We're a society that that shops at dollar stores so we can get the cheapest stuff as cheap as possible. And, but we can't continue the, this level of growth. Perhaps technological advancement will allow it to continue for, for several more decades. Nobody knows. But, but when you look at the level of consumption of resources, non-renewable resources in China and other developing countries, at some point that will have a major impact on prices of, of commodities. We saw that in 2008. When or right before the the complete or almost collapse of the global system, oil got up to one hundred and forty dollars a barrel, and just a five, six, seven years earlier, it had been closer to twenty, twenty five dollars a barrel. Barrel. Now, right now, we're we're around a hundred dollars a barrel. We're learning to adjust, but think about these economies that only have GDP of ten thousand dollars per person and want to be five times as big. What impact will that have on our resources? And, and that's another example, of, if we look at some of our recent episodes, why it's important to build pockets of independence. To learn, isn't it more prudent to learn to live in a way that we consume less resources now? And I'm not talking about it being mandated from the top. I'm talking about as families, as, as individuals, learn to be... To, to use less. It's actually surprising the range of energy use by country. China, this is according to the World Bank, uses 2,029 kilograms of oil per person. This is data from 2011. The U.S. uses 7,032 kilograms of oil per person. Australia uses about 5,800. But you would think, well, China, 2,000, U.S. at 7,000, Australia at just about 6,000. That's what developed countries use. They use six, 7,000 barrels of oil per person or kilograms of oil. Not true. 
The UK uses only about 3,000 kilograms per person. Germany, 3,800. France, about 3,800. Japan, 3,600. Italy, 2,800. So that th- we have some definitely outliers there, and certainly the U.S. is a much bigger geography, but that impacts things. Australia is a bigger geography. But still, there is the ability for individuals to reduce their footprint and their resources. And part of it, much of it's economic. Commodity prices are going to continue to rise because the demand is there. And we can see the demand because you can just look at the income figures for these developing countries and say, they want to be like us. They want to be like developed countries and live the same standard of living, to be able to drive where they want to drive, to be able to have the bounteous food supply, the level of beef, etc. So how does a poor country like China, $300 per person GDP in 1980, manage to grow 30 times over in 30 years to where they're now 60% of the size of the U.S. economy? Well, they follow the same economic model that a lot of other developing countries have used in the 20th century. And the prime example is Japan. Japan followed this model right after World War II and in, in the 50s and the 60s and 70s up until their, their bubble sort of burst in, in the 19, late 1980s. And, and you think about it, you're a poor country. Not, people don't have very much income. And so if you rapidly increase your output, which increases your GDP, the households don't have income to buy that output. And so what you do is you leverage your low labor costs to produce output to sell and export overseas. And so suddenly you're, you're selling huge amount of goods overseas and you're bringing in that income. You have your, your low labor costs, your workers have jobs, and, and that's one way to do it. The other, and that's what China did. The other way is you invest heavily in infrastructure, in building roads, in building mass transit systems, building bridges, building airports, building buildings. And so you dramatically increase your investment in infrastructure, and that provides more jobs for citizens, more income, which allows them to produce output. Those are the two main drivers of the Chinese economy over these last 30 years, exports and investment. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. 
my first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Now, China did a very interesting way to make sure that their exports maintain were, were competitive. Typically, if you're exporting huge amounts of goods, once you're a business, if you're a Chinese business and you've sold a bunch of goods, then, you, then, you're, then you have a lot of foreign currency. You have dollars, you have euros, and, and other currencies. Generally speaking, you would then trade them in the foreign exchange market, and, and some of these trade imbalances work out because the currency appreciates and it makes exports less competitive, and so you don't sell as much, and, so, and, and you kind of get to an equilibrium. That's not what has occurred in China. China has pegged the, their currency, the, the yuan, to the, the dollar. And so they've not let their currency appreciate. How do they get away with it? How do they do that? Well, Chinese businesses take their foreign currency that they've earned by, by selling goods overseas. They convert it to yuan at their bank, and then their bank, the local bank, sells that yuan or those dollars to the central bank, the Chinese central bank. What is it? And the Chinese central bank buys it and they'll buy as much foreign currency as Chinese businesses can produce. Where does the Chinese central bank get the currency, the yuan, to, to exchange for these dollars and for these euros that the banks or the businesses are bringing them? They print them. They create them out of thin air. We've talked about how how money is created in episode one. Central banks have the ability to create money out of thin air. And that's what China Central Bank has done. Now, there, there's some risk to that. The risk to that, if you're creating all this money to purchase your local businesses' foreign currency that they have, that pushes out a lot of yuan into the domestic economy in China, and that becomes an inflation threat. If you listen to episode two, what is inflation? Inflation is too much money chasing a limited supply of goods and services. And so huge amount of money going in because China is exporting so many goods. So that means the amount of yuan flowing through the domestic economy is increasing. And it also means that the Chinese central bank has aggregated huge stockpiles of foreign currencies, foreign currency reserves in terms of U.S. dollars, in terms of euros. What does the Chinese central bank do with that? 
Well, much of it, they invest in the U.S. and they invest in Europe. They buy treasury bills. They buy government debt. They buy real estate. And, and the fact that the Chinese currency hasn't appreciated has put downward pressure on prices. They've essentially exported deflation around the world and imported inflation into their own economy. And so that's another way China has impacted our pocketbooks. Goods are cheaper than they normally would be because of the way that the Chinese, some would say, have manipulated the currency, but certainly made a decision to peg their currency and to do it in such a way that they're creating inflation in their own country. The other way that China has allowed this rapid growth is they've suppressed interest rates in their economy. And that means that companies have been able to borrow at very, very low rates. If you have inflation 7 8%, but you're able to borrow at, at 3 or 4 that's a huge advantage. And so that, that really helps businesses and local government entities expand for these infrastructures and expand their capacity. But it hurts households because rates are incredibly low. You, Chinese citizens are losing money every year because they can't earn as much on their bank deposits. They earn much less than inflation. That is one reason Chinese citizens save a huge amount of their income. 30% of their disposable income in China is saved, and they save it for pensions, they save it for health care, they save it for education. And so, and, and so that's one of the other challenges that China faces. They've grown, faced. They have grown their economy based on investing, based on exporting, and they've hurt their households by keeping interest rates low. Now, don't get me wrong. The Chinese households have benefited. Their income has gone up because the economy is growing very, very rapidly. Chinese economy grew 15% or more for many, many years. Now that economy, that growth is slowing to about 7.5%. And here's the critical juncture for China. They have to flip their economy from being export-driven, from being investment-driven to being consumer-driven, because that's what developed countries do. They're primarily consumer-driven economies. And the way that you do that is you have to increase household income and you have to invest less. One reason China has to do this, and here's a quote from former Premier Wen Jiabao. He said, to unleash domestic demand holds the key to the long-term and steady development of China's economy. When your economy is based on investing and exporting, and when much of that investment is being led by government or quasi-government entities, you get two things. You can get overinvestment and overcapacity, and China suffers from that. And you can also get corruption, and China suffers from that. And the new president, Xi Jinping, has very much focused on reducing corruption, and stimulating the domestic economy. Now, these government entities, local government entities that are used to sort of living in a way where they they get access to great deals, the best investments, this is going to be a challenge for them. And that's why there's such a a, a sort of a, they're coming down on the corruption to sort of send a message. Because China has to flip their economy. And it's not certain that they're going to be able to, to do it and still grow at seven and a half, 
eight percent. The economy could slow very, very could could slow to three to four percent. So those are some of the challenges in in China. Will they be able to rebalance to this consumer driven economy? That what ultimately that means is the the currency in China will need to appreciate to give the Chinese more power to to purchase the households more power to purchase to import cheap goods and to become a developed country. Who knows how that's going to end? Now, I, I've mentioned that, that I invest in China, and, and China is a risky place to invest. I invest through exchange-traded funds. I invest because, if you recall from, I believe it was episode eight, what drives or how do you calculate the expected return for the stock market? Long-term investment returns are driven very much by corporate profit growth. In that episode, I talked about U.S. corporate profits probably growing 5%. In China, corporate profits are growing 14% per year, long-term expected corporate profit growth. So that would allow the stock market to appreciate faster because their economy and corporate profits are growing faster. The other reason I've invested in China is valuations are very, very cheap. The earnings yield in China, so that would be total earnings divided by the price uh, of the specific index, is about 10%. The higher the earnings yield, the cheaper the, the stock market. So in China, it's about 9.5%, 10%. In the U.S., it's 5.3%. The total world's 55 So China is about as, half as cheap as the global stock market in the U.S., Yet their earnings growth is dramatically higher at about 14%. The return on equity is also 14%. And the Chinese economy appears to have bottomed. It's going through a slowdown. And so I invested. Not, not a ton, probably 6-7% of my portfolio. But if you recall last episodes on, on risk, risk is that more things can happen than will happen. There's a range of returns. That potentially could happen. There's a range of outcomes. This rebalancing could go poorly. It, uh, anything could happen. The, the political turmoil the, in terms of the corruption breakdown could not go well. So there's risk there. There's concern about a real estate bubble. There's concern about bad debts within the banking system because so much investing has occurred within the traditional banking system as well as shadow banking system that, that they've overextended and, and that could be an issue. Although I, I recall I visited a hedge fund a few years ago that focused on Asian investing, and one of the things he reminded me was China owns their own banks. The government owns the bank, and they can prolong bad debts or recognizing bad debts for many years. And so, But that's just another example of the risk. Bottom line, China impacts our pocketbook because they use massive resources that potentially could impact commodity prices, which impact the price of goods in the Western world uh, throughout the globe. Second, it impacts our pocketbook because China is focusing on rebalancing their economy, which potentially means less exports from China, higher costs for overall products as they focus less on exporting deflation to the Western world and instead focus more on their households. Raising interest rates within their own economy will mean households will benefit 
Ideally, they won't have to keep saving 30% of their income so that they, because they're earning more on their investing, but it will also allow the middle class to develop as their economy becomes more consumer-focused. That potentially will also help the stock market. But there's risk, and that's part of what investing is, recognizing there's many things that could happen, but only one or two things will, and being prepared that things don't always go as we expect, and in fact, usually don't go as we expect. That's episode 17. If you have any questions on it, please email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my weekly insider's guide where I will email you the show notes, email you information that did not make it in the podcast, charts, graphs, anything that occurs to me. That's at moneyfortherestofus.net. Thank you for those that have left reviews. The podcast, Money for the Rest of Us, is no longer featured on Apple's iTunes in terms of their new a notable section. We've got to go without training wheels now. We're riding without the backstop or the, the promotion arm of Apple, and, and that's perfectly fine. They typically keep you on there for eight or nine weeks. We're not there anymore. So reviews help others discover the podcast because it helps the podcast rank well. Wanted to share a quick review with you today. This is from Alan Devens, titled Intellectual Yet Interesting. Apart from the reasonable device, I most like the show's courteous tone and demeanor. No bellicose yelling, corny jokes, bells, or whistles. Just reasonable advice about everyday topics. If you like Freakonomics or Radiolab, you'll appreciate this podcast. Thanks, Alan. Just a reminder, everything I've shared in this podcast is for general education only. I have not given investment advice, although I mentioned I'm investing in China. I didn't tell you to do it because you need to consider the risk yourself, perhaps consult a financial advisor. So I've provided only general education on money, investing, and the economy. Thanks for joining me next time, episode 18.